So what you got there, Sasha? It is our new book. <laughs> Very exciting. When kids say they're trans is now in print. And this is a book for parents who want their children to flourish, but who don't believe that social or medical transition is the best route for their health and well-being. And we think parents know their children better than anyone, so this book will give you the confidence to trust your instincts and also offer you some practical tools so you can be more effective in helping your child. So please visit our website, wekidsaythertrans.com, to order your copy today. Hello, Stella. How's it going, Missy? It's going well. Uh, today was a really fun interview. We yeah. finally got Katie Herzog on the show. We were thrilled. And it was a fascinating interview. We kind of weaved in and out of loads of different subjects. We asked Katie about being a lesbian and kind of moving. She was she was living in right in the middle of kind of queer land, as she might describe it herself. And just what happened to the community that she was living in? Yeah. Um, she also talked about her uh, 2017 article, which is about yeah. detransitioners. And that was, I think, the big kind of launch for Katie into the world of gender, at least from a writing perspective, of course, being in the gay community, the queer community, as we call it. She had been observing these things for a while, but when she wrote that piece, it was really huge. And um, we also asked her, you know, since 2017, what have you learned? What has surprised you? What's, you know, what have you changed your mind about? So there were a lot of interesting things she had to share with us. Um, and we also talked about things like repressed memories, which she mm -hmm. has covered in, in her writing as a journalist and lots of parallels with gender. Yeah, Katie brings a lot of wit and uh, thoughtfulness into her work. And she, she spoke about non-binary in a, in a very interesting way. And she spoke about pronouns. It was great to have a good, meaty conversation about pronouns. I, I honestly think we should bring this up more because this, yeah. this is we're all tackling these issues. So it was really, really interesting to talk to her about that. Yeah. And just in general, you know, Katie Herzog is uh, a journalist. She worked yeah. at The Stranger for some time. And uh, she also made an appearance on Bill Maher in the summer of 2022. And of course, she is the co-host, along with Jesse Single, of the very well-known and beloved podcast, Blocked and Reported. So we would encourage anybody who's not listened to their podcast to tune in. It's, it's witty. It's funny. They follow bizarre internet rabbit holes that are odd and entertaining and um and to be fair they've both also did some very serious journalism around pediatric gender medicine and detransition so it was a great conversation and if you are on youtube and you would like to support us please like and subscribe to the channel and if you're listening on podcast hop over to youtube and like and subscribe it really helps us to, to know what people enjoy and also to get our podcast into the ears and eyes of more people yeah, do, do your bit if you can to help uh, spread the word. And also, if you want to really show your support, don't forget our listener community. You can join our Patreon and we'd be delighted to see you over there. Yeah, so if you go to widerlenspod.com, you'll see links to all these different things. And with that being said, we will let you enjoy our conversation with Katie Herzog. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. 
Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Welcome to the show, Katie. Stella and I are really happy to have you here. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So you've been kind of covering, talking about, thinking about, writing about gender stuff for a while now. And I want to get to your 2017 article on The Stranger, which I think was like the first big piece you wrote about it. But can you talk about like, when did gender stuff come across your radar, maybe just on a personal level, like your backstory? So I, um, I am 40. So I guess this makes the this year is the 20th anniversary of my own coming out as a lesbian. I came out when I was 20. And you know, I was in college. I was not like most of my peers. I was not a lug, a lesbian in, until graduation. It actually stuck with me. Um, real uh, lifetime commitment. And so that was my first sort of intro. Like my, I became like part of the queer community, which is not a term that I actually now like really describes anything. You have disparate populations, which have, as you know, some competing and uh, some competing goals. Uh, but let's just say, for for simplicity's sake, I became part of the queer community, and pretty quickly at that time. So this was in the early two thousands, and there were tra- there were always trans guys around in this community. To a lesser, a lesser extent, there were trans women, but there were always trans guys, which at the time, I think we sort of thought of as like extra butch. You know, you had, um, you had your, you had your like stone butches and then like the next step would be like the, would be like the trans guy. And they were, they were really welcome in, in the community and it wasn't, and it, it just wasn't really a big deal to have trans guys in the community. They weren't, there was an acknowledgement that there was something different about trans guys than cis guys, to just use the term. I don't know how you guys feel about the term cis, but mm-hmm. just to, to mm-hmm. simplify things. Um, sure. There, there was just this acknowledgement. It, it was sort of tacit. It wasn't something that we really spoke of, but like trans guys were like welcome in lesbian spaces. When lesbian bars still existed, trans guys were like welcome at these parties. They dated lesbians, women who mm-hmm. under other circumstances would never date cis men. They were just part of the community. And, you know, I never sort of, I didn't really think that much about it. There was... There was a handful of them within these within these cities that I lived in. I lived in uh, in my early twenties. I lived in Portland, so a very sort of queer city. That I moved to Durham, North Carolina, also a very queer city. And there were always trans guys around. And um, then can, can, can I, can I, can I, I mm, can, go ahead? Considered with like you you've just said it, but I just want to reiterate: they were effectively considered just further on than the than the butch lesbians. They were just that little bit further. They, they were kind of considered kind of uh, women yeah oh female at least yeah 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 yeah. 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 this this idea that there was you know there's no difference between trans men and and males this would have been ridiculous they they embraced the difference you know there was a and and i think for some people like for women for lesbians who dated trans guys there was a, a sort of conflict they didn't like being perceived as heterosexual because that was that that was sort of was against their wow. their identity and also because it wasn't cool to be seen as heterosexual so if you're if you're like trans boyfriend passed too much that was sort of a problem because like nobody wanted to be seen as straight within these communities and this was something that i recently re- reread an article from 2003 that was in the san francisco gate and it was and it was about this there was this, mm-hmm. this long section about how how women were sort of lesbians uh, or dykes or queer women or whatever. They probably don't call, call themselves lesbians anymore because they're all pansexual or whatever. 
but there was this section about how, you know, the interviewed women who said, you know, I've always, like, I've always been gay and now I'm dating this trans guy and people think I'm straight and they were horrified by this. So this idea that, you know, that there was some, yeah, yeah, that yeah. they were like perfectly analogous is just, this was ridiculous 20 years ago. Uh, yeah, so there and, were always and trans one guys question, more question: yeah. like the mm-hmm. trans guys at the time, were they necessarily on testosterone to the point where their physical characteristics had changed a lot? Or do you also mean like the metaphorical, like super butch who uses he him pronouns and binds? Like in my scene, they were either on T or were going to take T. Okay, so this like okay. the non-binary gender fluid thing hadn't emerged yet at this point. Okay, so. I'm sure there were some there were some people who called themselves trans guys who were like in the process of getting it, but that was always the goal. This idea okay. that you would just like call yourselves trans without doing making any sort of physical changes, never got it. Never. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. So that was sort of the scene that I that I emerged from, and and it seemed very normal at the time. You know, I mean, I, I do remember the first like transsexual I met. This was before I came out as a lesbian. I was 18. The first time I met a transsexual, I worked at a, at a place that, um, at like a rafting company, you know, like people would come and, and like, you know, like whitewater rafting. And there was someone who worked in the bike shop who was a trans guy. And this was before I got to college and I grew up in a rural area. And so meeting that person, that was sort of like my exposure to trans people at that point had always been like just Jerry Springer. So I will admit, like, I thought that this was freakish at that age. But then when I entered into, you know, this like les- this like queer scene, the gay and lesbian scene, it like very quickly became normalized. And there were always trans guys in the scene. Um, and then, so I, you know, I lived the life of sort of like a 20 a something uh, lesbian, di- I called myself queer when I, I remember very clearly the first time I heard that term used, not as a slur, but somebody sort of embracing that term. And I said, like, mm-hmm. what are you like, what are you saying? And she sort of explained to me, oh, we're reclaiming this. This was also in the early 2000s. And I jumped on board with that. And then in 2013, so about 10 years ago, I uh, I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was working for the public radio station at the time. And I had one really good friend there who was a trans guy. And he, he had moved to Charlotte from a, from a small town. And he lived in a house that had, I, it was four or five people living in this house. They'd all been lesbians. And he came out as trans and he started taking testosterone. And within a year, everyone in the house had transitions. And he told me this. And I thought, like, there's this is a statistical impossibility. This can't happen. Like, we we know that trans people are less than one percent of the population. How in this small town did you all find each other? This is just Ooh. an impossibility. And uh, and I and I and I thought, like, oh, this is just this is just a bizarre like one-off case. And then you know, ten years later, whole households full of you know formerly queer women who transition is like incredibly. This is this is not an anomaly anymore. And in fact, many mm-hmm. of the people who I was in that in sort of the early days of my own queer awakening, being in the scene with friends, a shit ton of them have transitions, either to male or they've come out as non-binary, and they haven't done anything to change their physical appearance, but they change their names or, or maybe sometimes just their pronouns. So it's incredibly common now. So um, I feel like I've watched this whole, this whole, you know, sort of, I w- you know, I was around for like the early days of 
of the gay and not maybe not the early days. I was I was around for sort of the time when it was still very taboo to be gay. Uh, I remember when Ellen came out and she was called Ellen yeah. DeGeneres by the on by talk radio DJs or whatever. I remember that. I was a, I was a kid when that happened. Then I came out. You know, I was around for the sort of the acceptance. Of gay and lesbian people, and then now I'm I'm here to see the uh, see the increasing homophobia and the rise of the trans movement. Oh. And there, there's also this I've also found this interesting that within that community that I was involved in, and this is a, over I've lived in a lot of different places, so this isn't just one city I'm talking about. This is sort of I mean it's 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 sort of a small world in this sort of the queer scene. Um, there was a lot of of overt hatred of males mm. and. A lot of the same people who were the most strident men haters have become men, which I do find sort of interesting. Wow, that is interesting. Before we go there, could I ask you a question that I've always wanted to ask, and it's a little bit off the wall, but it really, it's like a problem that I can't, it's like a cognitive itch, that if if you're lesbian and you're attracted to the female body, how do you negotiate being attracted to a trans man who's becoming male, like with the, with you know their skin and the the hair and the let's say the mastectomy and what are you actually attracted to? I I I just it's a leap that I don't I can't seem to leap over. The wrong person to answer this question because I'm not attracted to men or masculinity, and I'm definitely not attracted to trans men. Um, so, but I think my guess would be that if you were asking somebody who was, and this is not a small number of people, there are lots of women who are attracted to butches yeah. and attracted to masculinity and, uh, and apparently are attracted to trans men, but not cis men, or at least don't want to date cis men. Um, I think they would say, you know, I'm attracted to the person, not the body, or they would say I'm attracted to the gender which to me just means stereotypes, not the sex. Uh, the person. Um, yeah. yeah, so people will find all sorts of ways to justify this. And not that they need to justify their own sexuality. I think it's just sort of an explanation that doesn't make sense to those of us who are sort of outside of it, but does make sense for people who, uh, who, fit, that, who fit that mold. And there's a lot of people yeah. who do. There's a... It's not at all... It's... I'm... I'm a lesbian, right? Like, I'm like a six on the Kinsey scale. But I do think that female sexuality, and this is something that I've changed my mind on a little bit, I think that female sexuality is much more fluid than male sexuality. So In fact, I. there are sex researchers, Sasha, you might know more about this than I do, but there are sex researchers who argue that the concept of sexual orientation doesn't even really apply to women the way that mm. it applies to men. And I have seen that not just in terms of, like, People who call themselves lesbians who are now in relationships with men or uh, or trans men, but women who were straight for their entire lives, and then all of a sudden at the age of thirty or thirty-five or forty or whatever decide that they're that they're going to date women, and you don't see that as much with men. It's not uncommon at all with women. I'm I'm married to a woman who thought she was straight. Until she mm -hmm. moved to Seattle and basically, mm -hmm. you know, found herself living with with lesbians, and it was like this, this, uh, this possibility sort of it sort of occurred to her for the first time. Oh, maybe I'm not totally straight, and you could argue that that's a social contagion. I think, in fact, it actually might be a social contagion, and uh, not. And I don't think there's anything inherently yeah. wrong with that. Well, I think uh, Sasha has a question, but I, I, I really do think that the male. Uh, like the homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual framework is, is 
is a male framework that doesn't massively suit. But anyway, off you go, yeah. Sasha. I know you have Okay, well, I have a lot of thoughts about that. I mean, first of all, there's a researcher called Lisa Diamond who actually presented recently at this thing that Mike Bailey and um, Blanchard oh, yeah. were at. And her research shows that even amongst both males and females, people report attractions, one-off sexual encounters that are homosexual oh, yeah. mm-hmm. in a way that is much more prevalent than people tend to think. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I have a theory which is really just based on my own personal experiences. But I, as I was kind of coming to terms with intimacy, sexuality, attractions. When I was younger, I was really predominantly attracted to females. Mm. And it was only until I actually became less creeped out and intimidated by males that I found masculinity more attractive. And that started off as like even finding masculine women more attractive. And then I started thinking slightly feminine men were attractive. And then more masculine men were attractive. So it came kind of in in conjunction with my own sense of safety, comfort, autonomy, like the more kind of intimidated and nervous I was around masculine sexual energy, the more like off-putting I found it. So there's there might be something, at least in my experience, of as we get older and kind of get to know ourselves better and feel more comfortable, that for females might broaden like the types of attractions they have. I don't know exactly what it means, but like when I think about women who are attracted to their partners as their partners transition, it doesn't really shock me that that's plausible for women. However, I have to say this kind of contradicts an argument that we often find ourselves making, which is that sexual orientation is based on sex. So what do we do with that? Because it's like it's not fair for for us to ask lesbians to date either males or masculine females like so. We bump into a lot of problems when we acknowledge like the facts of these phenomena. And I just wonder, like, where do you stand on that? Because I've seen a lot of lesbians get very upset with this idea that female, you know, sexuality is fluid. They're like, no, no, literally, like I've only ever been attracted to feminine females, for example. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's it's sort of a, a hard thing to grapple with. Yeah, after we talk about how the importance of, of sexuality being based on sex, not gender. But it it obviously has to be it obviously is both i'll just take myself for an example i am much more attracted to someone like janet mock janet mock is a is a passing trans woman than i am to someone like buck angel i'm not attracted to buck i think buck's a great guy i don't want to i don't want to have sex with buck um you know because i'm attracted to femininity do i want to have would i be attracted to a a passing trans woman with a penis no, I wouldn't. But I'm pretty far on the Kinsey scale. I, I actually think the Kinsey scale is a it's probably very problematic, but I actually think it's a it's a it's a handy metric. Uh, you know, and I just happen to be much gayer than I, or much more homosexual than I am uh, heterosexual. But obviously that varies by the individual. But, it, you know, it, it it's got to be both. It's got to be both gender and sex. And I think that's probably something that we all need to grapple with. Yeah. Um, there's so much here. I mean, one of the things this kind of touches on is like when we go down the rabbit hole of any particular frame of thinking, we hear arguments that are stated with a lot of certainty, like attraction is only based on sex. For example, that's one we just looked it up, but I know like on blocked and reported, you guys cover a lot of internet rabbit holes that have to do with sex and gender, but also that have to do with a lot of other things. 
And before we recorded, you were saying like, you can go too far down the rabbit hole on a lot of stuff. And I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts about that? Or like, what else were you thinking about when you said that? Yeah. So, you know, going down the rabbit hole. So I, my first sort of entry into, I guess, heterodox ways of thinking about, about this stuff was really, really came from this piece I wrote in 2017 about detransitioners and the response to that really changed my thinking in a lot of ways, changed my, that piece changed my life in a lot of ways. Um, but one thing that I, that I started to explore after it came out was things that, or one thing I've sort of become more interested in was things that our conventional wisdom, how conventional wisdom can be incorrect. And here's an right. example from something not even related to really people. Well, I guess it is related to people, but so I have a dog. I, I anybody who's familiar with me probably knows about moose. And uh, when Moose was a puppy, we were debating whether or not to get him to get him neutered. And every dog that I'd had had been neutered from a young age, you know, six weeks or eight weeks, very oh, young. Yeah. And that's just a sort of what we do in the U.S. I don't know how it is how it is in the U.K., but in the U.S., mm. it is just known that responsible dog owners yeah. fix their pets. It's just same it's just as what we do. right. And it turns out that this is. Also, also, this is very cultural in some places in uh, in Northern Europe and Scandinavia. It's illegal to to uh, to spay and neuter your dogs. I think in Sweden, I might be getting that wrong. But so I started doing all this research, and I found out that this can cause really serious health problems for different breeds of dogs. And this is just an example of one of the things that I sort of assumed that the conventional wisdom was good and correct and true and based on science. Believe mm. the science, right? And it turns out that it's not. Um, and there's all sorts of so, sorts of issues like that within our culture. And this has made me skeptical of, of experts, quote unquote, experts in a lot of ways. I, you guys might have caught this. There was a, a recent piece in The Atlantic by a woman named Jennifer Senior who wrote about how her aunt, her mother's her mother's sister was uh, born with a developmental disability and she was sent off to an institution when she was 21 months old. I come from a family that also, not my immediate family, but my mom, there was some disability in her family. She had a, a sister with Down syndrome who was sent off to, in the 1950s. She was institutionalized. She spent That's her nice. entire life in an institution because experts told her parents that this is what you should do. Yeah. And there are, you can see this in history. You can see it in science. You can see it yeah. in education. And this is all watching this unfold in the culture has made me more skeptical of expertise it's made me more skeptical of conventional wisdom. That said, once you die, once you like look into the rabbit hole, you can go too far and you can come out the other side, uh, you know, thinking that the earth is flat. Uh, we saw this during, during COVID when a lot of people sort of went, their brains kind of melted because a lot of what we were hearing from the experts with COVID, the initial, the initial uh, recommendations were incorrect some really bad public policy yeah. was, was developed based on these recommendations. And then you have, and, and then people saw that. And then a year later, two years later, three years later, they're full anti-vaxxers and they're, and they're not getting their kids the MMR vaccine. Yeah. You know? So, so I think that it's really important to, to watch yourself for those tendencies. I have those tendencies. I don't want to become a conspiracy theorist. And I think a lot of people have become conspiracy theorists including in this, in this, you know, the field of gender, 
Um, and, uh, and so I try to be really, really cautious of that. And I try to have a lot of epistemic humility and to be aware that I'm frankly not that smart. And I need to just sort of constantly watch myself uh, for the, for those worst tendencies. So I, you know, I don't want to become, I don't want to, I don't want to be a crazy person, but I also want to acknowledge that a lot of the things that we are told are good and real and true sometimes aren't. And sometimes they are, you know, it's a really yeah. difficult uh, intellectual position to be in. You yeah. have to get comfortable with uncertainty, which I am frankly not. <laughs> uh, yeah. And COVID was a rush towards certainty so fast. Totally. Suddenly everybody was an expert on everything. And it, I was blinking, like, we, we actually know nothing. But right. people uh, the living in the uncertainty has become, I don't know, I kind of think it's something to do with the post-religion mm. age, mm -hmm. that there's no certainty. So it's just grab this, grab that, grab right. the other. Right. Uh, yeah, I think there's probably a very uh, human desire to to have that certainty, and then and and part of of growing up is realizing that we don't have it, and we're not actually ever going to have it. I know. Yeah, it's and you know, it's so disappointing, and it's so hard because I think everyone's genuinely trying to do their best, and you inject kind of questions about morality and harm into this, and it really exacerbates those unfortunate tendencies. Um, and of course, that was so true during COVID because we were talking about people actually getting sick and actually dying. But then mm -hmm. there were kind of inflations of these things. But something that you've also covered as a journalist, which I'd love to talk about because I think it relates to this, is repressed memories, satanic ritual abuse, um, the idea of being able to compartmentalize your traumatic events and completely forget about them and then remember them suddenly. So can can you just walk audiences through a little bit about that? Because it relates so much to gender dysphoria and we just want to like help people understand that. We talk, we reference it, but I don't know if we've ever flushed it yeah. out. Yeah. The parallels are, are really striking. Mm -hmm. uh, so the repressed memory craze really started with a book called Sybil. And I'm, I'm not remembering the author at this moment, unfortunately, but this book was a, a, a therapist wrote this book based on essentially like the case studies of one patient of his, uh, that was this, this patient, um, said that she had multiple personalities. These are, these things are all sort of threaded to together, multiple personality disorder, which has since been rebranded to dissociative identity disorder, repressed memories, this idea that really horrible things can happen to you at a young age, for instance, and you can repress it and then memory, and then, you know, uh, at the age of 30 or whatever, when you enter therapy, it turns out that actually you're, you, uh, you know, saw your parents feed your baby brother to the family dog and forgot about it. So, so this came out in the 1970s and eighties. And there were these in the U.S., I don't know. I don't know if this if this uh, if this made its way to England or not. Um, but in the U.S., there were lots of people who were tried, who were accused, tried, and in some cases convicted of really heinous crimes based well, on the on the recovered memories of children. Could, could I just answer to that because I've never yeah. I've never mentioned this. No, as far as I know, it it didn't travel as, uh, no, I don't know, I might be completely talking out of turn. I certainly wasn't working in this field at the time, but it didn't seem to travel. But what did travel was the mindset. So you heard people say, oh, repressed memory all the time, just like, you know what I mean? It went into the culture mm -hmm. completely. But mm -hmm. I'm not convinced from what I haven't read very much about it, but I feel it's it got really entrenched within the 
the psychology world yeah. in America. Oh. Yeah. Absolutely. It really yeah. did. It became this real craze and it was, you know, it became a, beyond the psychology world. This became a, a sort of media story. And yeah, uh, well, that, it definitely did that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And oh, and I'm in Ireland, by the way. Oh, I'm, my, my apologies. <laughs> and, uh, and just so like locally. So I live in Washington state. There were a couple of, of infamous cases in Washington state where this happened. There was a, a sheriff's deputy in Olympia, Washington, whose children accused him of, of really horrific abuse. He spent, I believe, nine years in prison. The abuse never occurred. The kids really thought that it did. There was another mm, case in uh, Wenatchee, yeah. Washington, where a bunch of people, pastors, Sunday school teachers, teacher teachers were accused by these, by a group of young people of really, really heinous crimes, crimes that are so unbelievable that anybody should look at them with like a little bit of skepticism. And uh, we have a friend, uh, some, some friends of my wives are are from there. And a while ago, a couple years ago, I I said, Oh, you know, you're from Wenatchee. Do you know about the Wenatchee witch hunt? And and they didn't know what I was talking about. And, and I said, and I sort of explained it and they said, this couple, both of which were, were from there. And they said, oh, you're talking about the ring. You know, I do remember, I sort of vaguely remember there was this like this scandal over like some uh, human trafficking or something like that. They called it the ring. And I asked my friend, I asked our friend to go, her father was a pediatrician and I asked her to ask her dad about this. And so she did. And I asked her to, I asked her, if, you know, just ask her dad if maybe he'd be interested in, in talking to a reporter about this. And the next time I saw her, she said that she brought it up with her dad and he got very quiet and it turned out, and he said, we thought we were doing the right thing at the right time. And it turned out that he had testified in court as an expert, as like an expert witness against some of the people in his community, because he was a pediatrician. He was told, believe the children. Uh, you know, there's this this really, yeah, there's this famous um, Ms. Magazine cover from uh, sometime in the 80s or maybe early 90s with the the, the cover says something like, Believe the children, you know. And I thought about that a lot during the the height of the Me Too movement. Um, so yeah, this 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 became this really this really pervasive American story. And then it was sort of forgotten for a while. I hadn't heard about it in, in, uh, until maybe five or six years ago. And uh, and I started researching this, and it turns out that this is sort of this not forgotten period of American history because a lot of people are still alive who are who witnessed this um but maybe repressed maybe repressed period of american history and then now there's there's more interest in it now as well yeah um, there's so much about it that i find interesting i mean first of all to so that pe- we can understand like how clinicians got this in their mind i mean they're told something that i think seems somewhat plausible which is we know that um when bad things happen some people have denial about it, right? That's kind of like a pop psychology thing that we can all relate to. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm in denial about my, you know, eating too much junk food or something. But then you take that and you start making it a bigger thread. And all of a sudden you've leaped to, we can take entire portions of experience, completely forget about them. It's like a a denial extreme sports version or something. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And then you know, the, the therapists who are learning about this theory, which kind of seems plausible, though memory experts, of course, know that that's not true. Mm-hmm. Memory is so subjective and it's so suggestible. Mm-hmm. But then more therapists were getting training around these concepts. Yes. And then they were kind of like extracting memories from patients. And in addition to that, you were also seeing people who read the book Sybil, who mm-hmm. began to genuinely feel 
like they have either different parts of their personality coming out or that they get like a memory fragment. So it was this reciprocal process between patients coming into therapists with these reports, right? Just like gender dysphoric kids coming to therapists and saying, I'm really a boy and therapists being trained in the procedures to help. Yeah. So it's kind of snowballed in this incredible way to where everyone involved thought they were doing the right thing. Right. Right. This is researching this history and knowing about what's going on now with the gender stuff has made me really skeptical of therapy. Yeah. Um, And therapy is so pervasive now. It's, you know, not just in-person therapy, but I think BetterHelp advertises on probably every podcast in America. And I'm not totally convinced that... Yeah, except yeah, my my neither, and they won't after this. Um, and I'm not totally convinced that I think there's some sorts of therapy that can be really helpful, but I can also think there's some sorts of therapy that can be really bad for people. And in some mm. ways, I think maybe the, one of the most controversial things that I've ever said on Twitter, I said something like, you know, sometimes I think instead of therapy, maybe people should just go out and try to help somebody else. I got extremely ratioed for this tweet, but I do think that in some ways you know, perseverating on your problems, focusing on the self is not necessarily a healthy way to live one's life. Uh, and the research would back you up. You know, altruism is a, is a de- very definite direct line to well-being. You, mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? So you you had you had quality in your thoughts. Yeah, this is something that uh, that I, I don't um that this is more of a of a, a preach than practice thing in my own life. I'm not much of an altruist, but I think other people should go volunteer. You believe in the it, kitchen. yeah. But but you have gone to touch grass, and we I, know I that grass, yes. <laughs> being outdoors and exercise also have very well documented effects on mood. Yes, and I mean I I think part of the reason that you have this instinct, which I agree with. I mean, Stella and I are often very ironically recommending for families who have a gender dysphoric yeah. kid to broaden their world, like make sure their life is full of interesting, engaging things and don't actually get obsessed with gender. But I think part of the reason for this is that what we think of as therapy has become very superficial and non-helpful conversation. Mm -hmm. And somebody like a Jonathan Chedler, I know that you guys have some skepticism about psychodynamic therapies, which is totally fine. But I think when therapy is working well, you're supposed to actually learn how to break your patterns that are unhelpful and have better, more functional relationships with people rather than talking in a room and feeling terrible for yourself. Like that's not what therapy should be. And our whole culture has kind of watered down. I think the idea of therapy, but to be fair, you know, Stella and I've talked about this on the other hand, sometimes overly introspective, very deep types of therapies are not helpful for everybody. And that's a little bit of a, kind of not evidence-based as well. So it's hard to know like what different people really need to improve their life in a meaningful way. Uh, Uh, Yeah. Well, I'll just throw in, sadly, there's a kind of a therapy culture we're in now, which I think is really unfortunate, especially with teenagers. I think, you know what I mean? I, I, I just think that the, the, the parents instinct to help the kid is to look for the therapist Mm-hmm. that particular triangle is something that I think is actually very damaging. Yeah. I'm curious about, uh, I've never personally done CBT, but, you know, CBT gets sort of a, it seems to be a very evidence-based 
practice. I like that it's proactive. I am. Well, that's what I'm curious about. Watch yourself. That's what I'm curious about. Are we going to find out in, you know, in a, in a year or two or five years that CB, that CBT is actually, not CB, CBD. CBT. Uh, CBT CBT. is actually, yeah, it's actually not evidence-based. CBT is as good as chat BT. Because there's, I mean, there's, you know, the replication crisis, it turns out that is almost nothing actually replicates. So what do you guys know about this? Is is, is CBT also a pseudoscience as well? Yeah. (laughs) In a nutshell, I've got a master's in CBT. And Uh uh, um, I think there's an awful lot of flaws in the research around CBT. You know, you might, you might symptom reduction, you might go in for anxiety and you might have a, you know, a reduction in symptoms in your tapping or you're cleaning your hands. In the meantime, you might have started to drink lots more. Mm. But technically, yeah. <laughs> technically, this symptom is reduced. You know what I mean? It's 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 I, I think actually trying to measure psychotherapy is is a is a fool's errand. And I know uh, researchers won't be happy with that, but I think it's kind of like trying to and I'm talking about good therapy. It's like trying to measure, you know, the impact of art in your life or the impact of music in your life to try and quantify how my favorite songs have impacted my my sense of self or good. My favorite books. I I, I, I can't. Right. You know what I mean? I, it, it's right. not measurable. It was asking the right. wrong question. Right. And so when we went in to starting to measure psychotherapy, we, we, we really, we opened something that we, it was the wrong question. That's my, my, yeah. 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 You know, Jonathan Shedler is a psychotherapist and a researcher, and he's actually done a lot of yeah. looking at CBT and what the research shows. And I think his point, and you could look at his paper, he's, he wrote something called where's the evidence for evidence-based therapy. And he mm. kind of goes through with a very analytical look at all the research. And I think his conclusion is basically that if you take any therapy framework and use it like a manual, as Mm -hmm. though you're just like assembling a car, it is probably not going to be effective. When you look at lots of different types of therapies, when they have had positive outcomes, it has a lot to do with the relationship between oh, the yeah. therapist and the client, mm-hmm. the way the the therapist is able to kind of point out dynamics that are happening between you. And then you, the idea is then you carry that forward and improve other relationships in your life by kind of being called out about what you're doing in therapy. So mm-hmm. he, he would probably argue it's not the actual manual CBT that if you go through this protocol with a very dogmatic perspective that you're going to have good outcomes. It's, it's more about the way therapy is conducted. So it's Mm. an interesting thing to look at. And, you know, uh, we touched on this a little bit. I don't have a ton of knowledge about this area yet, but I also feel like we're seeing a slippery slope kind of um, thing with trauma, complex PTSD, and now actually DID, which is multiple personalities is back. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of ways that within the psychological culture that we have now, certain labels just kind of get slapped onto a broad range of phenomena that are hard to define and may not necessarily help people yeah. kind of like broaden. Yeah. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools, and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH. 
providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress, GenSpect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, GetA. GetA is an association of therapists who believe that individuals experiencing gender-related concerns ought to be treated using a whole-person approach. We connect like-minded clinicians, provide educational resources and training, and help people with gender dysphoria find the right help. Visit GetA at genderexploratory.com. And now back to the conversation. Um, I, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you, what are your thoughts on pronouns and non-binary gender labels? <laughs> I um, I think they're fucking ridiculous. I really, I really like. I think my real objection is to they is to the singular they them because it is confusing and people like to pretend that it's not confusing it is actually confusing and oh. yes we can all use it there are times when it when it when it sort of rolls off the tongue yeah. when you don't know someone's sex or gender you're talking about sort of a theoretical person yes it can work in that case but i think that for whatever reason they them has stuck in a way that prior neo pronouns haven't I think that Z is a much, much, uh, it's much less confusing. I could have gotten on board with, with the Z. It didn't take off. They, them did. But it has, the word they has a meaning that is the opposite of the meaning that people are trying to to make happen. So uh, I think it's confusing. I don't like it. Um, and I also, the non-binary thing, it bothers me because... I think it reifies the idea that there is a gender binary in the first place, which I don't believe in. All of us have qualities that are masculine and qualities mm-hmm. that are feminine. None of us are actually binary. And it, to me, it just seems like a way for people to, to seem special. It, it, it also, I think it is a way for people to sort of opt out of, 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 of heterosexuality, if they're heterosexual, to be sort of, uh, I don't know, I think it was sort of it was like translate. Um, <laughs> In some ways, I just I I have very little patience for it, and this is not a popular p- uh, position that I have taken. Um, you know, I think it's a fad. I think it's silly, and I think that it actually does a lot of harm. And and the thing that probably bothers me the most about it is that because we live in a time when identitarianism is 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 huge, we're not supposed to question it, and it mm-hmm. is seen as questioning someone's you know this deep sense of who they are it's like questioning someone's soul and i just or their their right to exist is what's often said exactly and i just don't buy that that said my my policy as a person who speaks to the public is to be a pronoun respecter in public and i do that because not because i think that uh that that using that misgendering people is uh, is immoral or anything like that. I don't really think it's immoral. I do think it can be very rude, but I mostly think it's counterproductive. And so I do, the they, them, I, I sort of struggle with respecting the they, them pronouns because I find it so unintuitive. I do use people's preferred pronouns for the most part um, when I'm speaking publicly. When I'm speaking privately, I say whatever the fuck I want. When I'm speaking publicly, I try to respect people's pronouns. And that is a, it's a, ta- it's tactical because mm-hmm. I think you, 
if you don't, if you start out by misgendering people, it turns your audience, it's going to turn part of your audience off. And it becomes a, it becomes like the conversation just sort of ends there. If you don't respect people's pronouns, you are de facto a bigot. There's no reason to listen to what you say. So I think it is a, um, I think it's a, a silly hill to die on for activists. And I'm, I'm not an activist at all, but I see lots of gender critical women who refuse to use people's preferred pronouns. And I think they're just shooting themselves in the foot. And then there's also a lot of inconsistency with it. You know, if you are going to consistent, and some people are consistent, um, Nina, whose last name, Nina Paley. 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 Yeah, yeah, she she misgenders everybody. She just goes by mm-hmm. sex. She's consistent about it. She will call Buck Angel he or she. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I just, Buck is a friend of mine. I don't think of him as a woman. I know that he's female. I don't think of him as a woman. I think of him as a trans man. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, and I don't like, and I know a lot of, of other sort of gender critical activists who will, who will selectively apply the pronoun that they want based on if they like the person. So Blair White will be she, Buck Angel will be he, but Grace Lavery will be he, and uh, I don't know, Katie Montgomery can, will be he. Can I, can I yeah. make a point that I've sometimes thought, obviously we've all thought about pronouns way more than we ever thought mm-hmm. we would. <laughs> yes. Especially, uh, yeah. I've started to come to the point of, you know, the way some people are very sensory sensitive. So the can I am, what yes. clothes they wear and things like that. I think some people are, are kind of linguistically sensitive or and so they they, they their brains fry mm-hmm. at the idea. I can quite easily call yeah. somebody a trans woman, call her she, and know fundamentally in yes. everything I know that they're a male. I I, I can it doesn't fry my brain right some people it seems to just absolutely it's like a screeching kind of shriek yeah they can't do it like it like a chewing sound yeah it's like yeah Yeah. it's like some sort of kind of ah and they're like but no that's a that's a male so you have to stop saying that and I think it it hits them differently yeah 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 that makes sense to me and I also think that because people have been punished for this you know people like Megan Murphy being kicked off of Twitter I think there's a um, a sort of knee-jerk reaction to refuse to use the preferred pronouns yeah. because it's a it is a protest, and I support that. I don't think people should be penalized for not using yeah. preferred. I don't think you should be kicked off of any social network. I don't no. think you should lose your job. I really don't. But I just think tactically it is an error. And I've seen this. You know, Erica Anderson, uh, the uh, clinician in San mm-hmm. Francisco, who has been very outspoken about her concerns about pediatric transition and what's happening in trans healthcare, specifically for youth. She is a fantastic ally of the gender critical position because she is a trans woman. She is a clinician. People misgender her on Twitter and she doesn't like it. I've heard, I've seen her say this. Can you please, can you please stop calling me he, him? Can you please stop? And to me, it's like, why are you risking alienating this person who is much better for your cause than, you know, than, uh, than some of your other allies uh, who don't alienate people? Why are you doing this? So to me, it just seems like a tactical error. And um, not one that yeah. I would make if I were advising these people. It's really hard because I think that tactical, I mean, I agree with you. And I always try to understand why people do what they do on both sides of the equation. And I do think that the, the reason people feel so protective over their right to use like correct sex pronouns is precisely because we are in the middle of like a cultural landscape that is so dogmatic about it and punishing about it and treats people as though the only reason they would do that is cruelty and hatred. Which is also incorrect. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's hard because I think we, we all 
are trying to react to the culture around us. But we also, like you said, certain people just kind of take a principled line and they go there. But is that going to be palatable? I mean, I always try to think about how do we build bridges? How do we, and to be fair, I mean, I often, even in therapy, will tell my clients, like, you shouldn't force yourself to do something that doesn't feel instinctual, right? So Mm -hmm. if I was talking to someone like Blair White, I would have to actually work really hard to refer to Blair White as a he. Like my brain would have to go into pretzels because visually and just kind of organically, I see Blair White as a very feminine person who looks like a woman. So I think that part of it feels to me just as dogmatic if you're if you're totally. only using something yeah. on principle because then you yeah. literally do have to ask everybody like yeah. what exactly is your biological sex yeah. so that but I know what pronouns session, to use. I, I hear you, but in fairness, as far as I can gather, the people who are dogmatic find it equally difficult to, to see Blair White as a she. Right. I don't know about that. I don't believe really, that. I don't really, believe that. I mean, so okay. much of it I comes know. down I to this theory, but some, <laughs> yeah, of, so know. much of it comes down to passing. Take someone like Dylan Mulvaney. I had a really <laughs> hard time referring to Dylan Mulvaney as she until yeah. Dylan Mulvaney had really good plastic surgery and hair extensions and wears makeup. Now Dylan Mulvaney passes as a woman, and I, I'm like, in the the surgery is so impressive. I want to get facial feminization surgery myself. Uh, you know, and I don't have any. <laughs> I don't have a hard time referring to Dylan Mulvaney as she now, because Dylan Mulvaney looks like a woman, um, you know, maybe in person, maybe in person, Dylan wouldn't pass as well. I think that does tend to happen because trans yeah. men, tend, trans females tend to be, trans women tend to be bigger. Uh, you know, it's, it's easier to pass on it through a screen than it is in, in real life. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I think that's a, there's so much lookism sort of involved in the conversation. And it's good. I think it's it's important for us to acknowledge that. And the same thing is true of bathrooms. You know, like I I think that my position on on bathrooms might even be inconsistent, or it might make zero sense. I think that people should basically use the bathroom that they, they pass, pass with. You know, <laughs> and then but then you have butch lesbians, right? Should butch lesbians be required to use the men's bathroom because sometimes they look like men? Of course not. Of course they yeah. don't. Yeah. You know, and then, but you have like there's a. There's a trans woman on Twitter who, who by at least by her photos, passes as she's a genetically trans woman. I'm forgetting her name at the moment. She passes as as a, as a woman. She's very small. Yeah. She looks like a woman. She's had she's had all the surgeries. Mm. She uses the men's bathroom because she is that gender critical. She uses the bathroom of yeah. her sex. Right. I think that puts her in danger, and I think that that's going to make the men in the bathroom more uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Right. So. I mean, I think that people should, I don't believe in bathroom bills in, in part because of that, but I think people who are in this position who are gender non-conforming should really think about how they're making, uh, how they're making other people feel and, and, and their own safety. And it's, you know, I don't think that you can really craft public policy around that, uh, but it is maybe sort of an, an, you know, a morally inconsistent position to hold. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole thing that this brings up is, like, what are categories anyway? You know what right, I mean? Right. And why do they matter? And why is it that in general, transgressing a category always causes some sort of a cultural kerfuffle? Why is that? And, and I think the same thing is true for incredibly gender nonconforming gay men and women. Like, their presence has always ruffled some feathers and yes. caused there to be unfortunate constrictions on their behavior and trying to shame people and force people. And I, of course, don't agree with that. And I definitely think 
butch women should be using the women's restroom. But, you know, categories are just the way our brain helps us make sense of the world around us. And so it's inevitable that whenever we deviate in a profound way from a category, it's going to, we have to answer questions about that as a culture and as people. And it's, it's weird. I mean, there's no great answers here. And that's why I'm so skeptical of any position that holds an incredible amount of certainty and makes it seem like everything's black and white. Cause it's not being a human is quite complicated. That's what I love about Corinna Cohn, who says adult human weirdo. Like yeah. it's so true. It's just yeah. so true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we are all engaged in a, in a social contract though, where we're trying not to impose our presence unnecessarily everywhere in the queue, you know, yes. everywhere. And Best so- case scenario. <laughs> <laughs> and so in, in, in toilets, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to go to the toilet without imposing ourselves as yeah. much as possible. That's yeah. what one does in a public toilet. Yeah. You know what I mean? On all sorts of levels. Yeah. And I think that should be acknowledged as yeah. what you're doing when you're entering a public toilet. You're trying to kind of do something which isn't like palatable to anybody. Me going to the toilet beside you. Ugh. You know what I mean? We're trying to just do that in a civilized way because we're in a civilized society. So the the key to going to the toilet in public is don't do it in a civilized manner that doesn't impose your presence. Yeah, Yeah. I think the issue is just that there are lots of people who violate the the social contract because they want to. Yeah, and for sure. any which way. So if you're insisting on going in and presenting feminine and going in because you're 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 imposing Mm -hmm. yourself. No mm-hmm. matter what, you are imposing yourself, I think, right. into everybody yeah. else's brain, whether right. they like it or not. Right. There you go. So, yeah. So <laughs> you wrote this 2017 article. Um, basically, it's called something like detransitioners. They were transgender till they weren't or something yeah. like that. It's called right? the detransitioners. And then the mm-hmm. subtitle is they were transgender until they weren't. Yeah. Um, we will include that in yeah. notes and, and other things. Um, but that was a while ago, 2017 in the world of gender. That was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. An can, ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you kind of summarize a little bit about what that piece was? It was really groundbreaking at the time. I think mm-hmm. now the detransition story is out there. And of course, mm-hmm. people have different spins on it. But can you summarize that piece and then maybe follow up with like, have you changed your mind about anything or, or learned any new things that at, in 2017 you wouldn't have? agreed with or thought about. Yeah. So the piece was, it was profiles of maybe six, it's been a while since I've reread it, but maybe six detransitioners, both male and female. And uh, it was about their, you know, their experience. And, and part of what I wanted to get at was that they were really stuck between these two positions where a lot yeah. of them told me like, it was harder to come out as a detransitioner than it was to come out as trans. And when I detransitioned, I lost my community because trans people were sort of horrified by this. And a lot of them pushed back on it because they were, they were, it was seen as though they would be used uh, as a cudgel against trans people and their ability to get healthcare. This was a valid concern by trans people. We have seen this happen in in the U S in terms of public policy and in a few different, in many States actually. So I think a valid concern. Um, but that was kind of my interest in it was, was these people really stuck between these two positions where they didn't want to be, they wanted their stories told. They didn't want to be used by the conservative, right? This is something almost all of them talked to me about. 
And, uh, and I think it was sort of prescient because a lot of the things that people talked about being concerned with did, did, did come happen. to fruition. They did, they yeah. did happen. Um, but the reaction to the piece, and I mean, there are lots of things that I would change now in the piece. Like the piece came out before Lisa Littman's work on, mm. on rapid onset yeah. gender dysphoria had been published. I think she had a, she'd had a, a poster at a conference, but it hadn't been published yet. Um, and I think I, I did this thing that I wouldn't do now, which is, you know, th- this piece was written for the stranger, which was Seattle's alt weekly. Seattle's a very liberal city. Mm-hmm. And I did this sort of, uh, to be sure thing, the sort of, I'm going to, I'm going to like put all of these markers here so that, you know, that I'm not one of the <laughs> bad ones. So there was some hedging in the piece that I wouldn't have done if I were writing it today. I think it was sort of necessary because of the outlet in the city, but I don't think it helped at all. Um, yeah. Like I don't need to, you know, I don't need to, to write like 10 paragraphs on transphobia and the right wing um, in a piece that really wasn't about that. And then I also, I, there's one statistic that I think will haunt me forever, which is I said something about, uh, I wrote something about, you know, uh, rates of, of regret of, uh, of people who've had surgeries, gender affirming surgeries or whatever are low. They're, you know, they're regret rates are less than 1%. They're less than like people who get nose jobs or whatever. Oh yeah. That's not true. We just don't know that. And at the time I wasn't as tapped into sort of the research, uh, I thought that this was true. It was based on sort of the things that activists said were true. And these studies that as Jesse single has written a lot about the studies are bad. If you lose, you know, 40% of your cohort to follow up, you can't make these sort of grand sweeping statements about Mm -hmm. regret rates. So I would have, I would have done less hedging and I would have, I would have said, you know, that we just don't actually know. Um, And I just, frankly, I just wasn't as well informed about the issue as I, as I am now. Uh, so in, your de- in your defense, the literature that was out there was telling you that, that yes. it's, it's bad yes. literature. It was it, you, is. it wasn't that you weren't that you hadn't read it. It was right. bad literature. I wasn't aware of how bad it was. Yeah. That was sort of where the ignorance came in, was that I wasn't yeah. as well versed in the in the methodolo- methodological flaws uh, of that's, the research. That's a key part. I know I'm, I'm I, I I know you know this, but anyway, it's a key part of the problem is that we, we we depend upon a chain of trust. Yes. We depend on the car working as right. the manual tells it. Do you right. know what I mean? So right. you depending on the research was you doing your job. That's right. what you're meant to be doing. Right. right. Yeah, it's, it, you know, and it really is um, working with Jesse and spending an awful lot of time on Twitter and seeing these battles unfold you know, if I had at the time, Jack Turbin wasn't wasn't sort of the yeah. name that he is now, but I would have cited Jack Turbin uncritically, mm-hmm. um, you know, at that time, had he had he had he been available. So there are definitely things I would have changed. And and one of the one of the detransitioners I spoke to has since retransitioned, although in this sort of bizarre way where she calls herself a trans man, but she still uses she her pronouns. Um, and she has since come out and said that she lied to me about her story. I wouldn't have used her in the story. I would have been a little bit, um, there were no, there were no red flags at the time yeah. with this person and whose name I'm actually blanking on right now. Um, there, so there were no red flags. So I wouldn't have had any reason not to believe what she said, but, um, but identity is clearly fluid, very fluid with some people. And one of the people I use just happens to have an extremely extremely fluid uh, idea of, of who she is 
Um, I won't be surprised if she re-detransitions re and then retransitions again and does it a we few need, more we times. Need a, we need a num name for that because it's happening. Yeah. The, the, the transition, the detransition, the retransition, and the re-detransition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I, I suspect? I mean, this is just totally a philosophy of mine. There's no evidence for this. But I think some people transition to signal how counterculture they are. Oh, 100%. Yes. And then detransition was super counterculture. Oh, and now it's now not it's, anymore. Yes. Now it's yeah. like God. a very conservative right wing yeah. thing. I mean, not that I agree with that, but that's how it's often framed. Yeah. So I suspect there will be some people who are just being as edgy as possible. So like exactly being a trans man, but having she, her pronouns, that's very pioneering of this person. Right. Right. No, I think you're totally right about that. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting that I, I doubt of the three of us here, I doubt any of us, I, I doubt any of us would, would argue that there's no social contagion when it, when it mm. comes to this issue. I also think it's possible that there could be a, a social contagion of detransitioners. I do oh, think yeah. it's possible. You know, yeah. I, think, I think most human behavior can be a form of social Don't contagion. You. And I, and I think it's interesting, or at least possible that we will see trans activists who have argued that it's not possible. There's no possible way that transition could be a, a social contagion, arguing that detransition is a social contagion. Yeah. I was just thinking about that this morning, like how interesting that will be when you can apply a theory to one thing, but yeah. never to another thing. Right. Yes. And you just yeah. have to, I, I mean, I think you, I can also see, you know, sort of gender critical feminists saying, nope, nope, the transition couldn't be a social condition. That is who one really and truly is. But we have to acknowledge that, yes, humans are weird um, and our behavior is massively influenced by the people around us. That is part of being a social animal. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything really wrong with uh with transitioning due to social contagion except when it is not the right choice for you personally i mean that's what our concern should be should be happy outcomes yeah and i think my issue and i've been really thinking about this a lot i'm not going to say that in all and every case medical interventions are disastrous and will ruin a life no i think people need to know what the trade-offs are before embarking on a big decision and i am just against the lying and the covering up of information and the, the misleading people yeah. by using kind of like semantic tricks and weird language to to misinform people of like yeah. what they're really signing up for yeah and i mean of course if you are interested in transition as a coping strategy for other problems you're having, you need to deal with those and pick the the, the greatest outcomes possible for yourself yeah. and for your health. Yeah. So. I mean, if, if there weren't real and very serious side effects that, and social changes, societal changes that, uh, that came along with transition, I would have, I wouldn't really care that much. Right. The problem is that if it doesn't work, if it doesn't actually alleviate someone's dysphoria, if it causes really long-term, really serious health effects, especially with children, um, and if we have to remake society based on on a small minority of people who are dictating to us what public policy is, those are the issues. Um, but yeah, I don't have like I don't have any sort of basic moral issue with people transitioning. I that's I don't I don't really care. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we love your show, Blocked and Reported, and we Thank really you. appreciate all of the writing and coverage you've done on this issue and so many other issues. We'll include all of that information in the notes. Um, is there anything else that you want our listeners to know before we wrap up this portion? I don't think so. Okay. Well, tell Moose we said hi. I will. 
and we'll keep you around uh, to hear a little bit more about how you discuss gender IRL with real people. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.